Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 2nd, we're studying Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 28. Paul and Barnabas proclaim Jesus in Lystra and Derby before they make their way back through the towns they had visited previously on this first missionary journey. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Pastor Ulmer, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We are at the end of Paul's first missionary journey. What should we know going into this text? Yeah, so Paul and, and Barnabas, they leave Antioch, they go to Cyprus, they enter into Pisidia, and the text immediately preceding uh, what we're going to be talking about today at the beginning of Acts 14, uh, they are they have kind of left Pisidia, Antioch and Pisidia. They go into Iconium. I believe this is in part of what was Roman Galatia. And in that text, they they leave Iconium because they're chased out of town uh, by some Jews who are upset uh, with the apostles. Uh, because some of the people in the area are converting to the gospel of Jesus. Uh, they get chased out of Iconium, and then they kind of head further into Galatia, which is Lycaonia, more specifically, uh, into these uh, two cities, Lystra and Derby, and they have some interesting encounters once they reach these two cities. So those are those are mild adjectives, Pastor Ulmer. They're they're interesting <laughs> encounters. The Jews were upset with Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> yeah, I, I might I might undersold that one a little bit. Uh, being chased out of town, having your life threatened, is. Uh, <laughs> Is, is something it really is I mean the the opposition that they they get already on this first missionary journey it is is remarkable and yet I suppose it really shouldn't surprise us especially when we remember who we're talking about here we're talking about Paul who formerly was yeah. one who was persecuting the church himself and so he continues to I mean what Jesus told Saul slash Paul back in Acts chapter 9 continues to prove itself true he shows Paul how much he will suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Amen to that, and I think we're really going to start un uncovering what some of that suffering that Jesus not only promised to Paul, but promised to all uh, his apostles and disciples, that the things that they would suffer for the 
for the cause of the gospel, a lot of that becomes very concrete in our reading for today. Yeah, yeah. And as, as you said, I mean, there are interesting things that do happen in this text. This is one of those sections in the, the scriptures that probably does not get read very often within a worship service. And sometimes we skip over, say, in the, the Sunday school stories that we tell. And yet, it's one of those places where you find out that just about anything can and will happen in the life of a pastor. I mean, the things that happen to Paul and Barnabas here are <laughs> yeah. pretty crazy. They, yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty crazy. Uh, they're stuff that I hope would never happen in our beloved uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But I mean, we are dealing with the gospel of Christ here, and people are people, and that suffering for the sake of the gospel continues. So, I I don't know if I would completely call ourselves immune to it. I I hope it would never happen. Uh, but yeah, I I double your your statement about not being too. Uh, too uh, common of a text in our in our worship services. Yet, I, I think you you have in Acts 14 a really really important text because um, we we get here right at the beginning where it seems uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to be proclaiming the gospel to uh, an audience that is primarily or maybe fully Gentile. And that's kind of what really changes here and makes this text interesting. Yeah, that, and I appreciate you bringing that out, because we've seen several sermons from Peter, from Paul now once, in the book of Acts, and there's been a lot of similarities between the sermons, say, of what Peter first preaches, and then what Stephen preaches, and what we just heard Paul preach. There have been their unique emphases, of course, but there's been a lot of similarities. And in what we hear Paul preached today, which is maybe a, a bit shorter or a summary of, a, of the sermon, there's going to be a, a different—it's the same gospel, of course, but you can—I think you can see that he is preaching to a more of a Gentile audience, whereas previously those sermons were directed more to Jewish audiences. So I'm sure we'll have more to say that when we get there. So let's, let's go ahead and jump into this text. This is Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. We'll pause there. That takes us through verse 18 of the text. So, Pastor Elmer, before we get to the, the part that we is maybe a little more striking to us, when Paul and Barnabas first get to Lystra, they do encounter something that we've seen 
happened previously in the book of Acts on more than one occasion, and it goes back into the ministry of Jesus. There's this man who can't walk, and Paul does something for him. Start us into that account. Yeah, so they they come into town, and, and they do find a man who is crippled from birth and had never walked. And, I mean, you get this this kind of scene uh, back in Acts 9, and, and Peter uh, heals a, a man who isn't, who, who's crippled, but he, he hadn't been crippled all of his life as far as I know. He had only been bedridden for, as I'm looking here, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go even further back into the, into the ministry of Christ, you, you have different uh, scenes where, where people bring to Jesus uh, people who had suffered lots in, of various ills, I think that the two that really come come to my mind they're not really parallel, but you have the the paralyzed man who is lowered down from the roof, mm-hmm. and you have uh, there you have the similarity of paralysis, and then you have like the the situation with the man born blind who has this mm-hmm. malady that's uh, been been plaguing him from his birth. And in each of these cases, you have uh, Jesus and Peter, to this point, showing people who are there what it means to live inside the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus tells the man uh, who is lowered from the roof, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. You have the, the crowd in the house kind of arguing with him about who can and can't forgive sin, and Jesus then says, to show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I tell you, pick up your mat and walk, and the man does. You have the man born blind, where where Jesus restores his sight, and you have the whole kind of trial between the man and the the Jewish leadership about uh, who was it that healed him, when he was healed, how could this be? Uh, you have this issue. You have this uh, instance with Peter um, healing after the ascension of Jesus uh, in Acts nine, where uh, Peter speaks to Aeneas to mm-hmm. to get up and and walk because Jesus had made him well. And in all these cases, um, what's shown is that in the kingdom of God, uh, people who have illness and malady, they're fully restored, and you have the same thing here. Yeah, and there's another place in Acts, Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are in the temple, and they meet there a man who's, and he is lame from birth, like the man who's mentioned here in Lystra, and and then that's another time where, and there's, uh, there's, in that case, there's also this the same focus on this looking at the person, like we see here in Acts 14. But the, I think the reason it's important to notice how this gets repeated multiple times within what happens in the kingdom of God, what Jesus began to do in his ministry and what he's continuing to do here in the book of Acts, is partly in, in the parallel that you mentioned in Matthew chapter 9 and what's recorded in the other synoptic gospels as well, is the connection between the forgiveness of sins and the bodily healing that happens, that within the kingdom of God, it is a, a full restoration that the preaching of the gospel brings about. And, and I think that's important in Acts 14 particularly, because all we really see in Acts 14 is the man is healed, and then the, the total misunderstanding of the crowd, which we will come to. But I think those yeah. parallel texts serve as a good reminder that what Paul is doing here is he's doing the whole thing. He is preaching the gospel, and Luke does tell us 
that in, in verse 9, for example, he listened to Paul speaking. This man was part of the, the yeah. people who are listening to Paul preach the gospel. And Luke even tells us that this man had faith, which is something that is new. In, in Acts chapter 3, and also in Acts chapter 9, in those two occasions where, where Peter healed someone in the same situation, I don't think in either situation was it made plain beforehand that the person had faith. Here, this person does have faith. Why, why is that important, particularly in this context? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's kind of strange because, number, number one, as I'm sure we're going to be talking about here in a second, there's no no mentioned in Lystra that there was uh, a synagogue. Mm. Now that's not to say that there there wasn't. I think in the commentaries that I read, there there likely was some exposure to the Jewish faith with these people. But here you're you're not dealing with Paul and Barnabas uh, walking into a synagogue and preaching and, and doing miracles of the kingdom of God in, in the synagogue. Here, uh, they've really entered into what you might call fully or more Gentile land. Hmm. Uh, people that were maybe not as exposed to Judaism as the other people, uh, people who are actually, we're going to find out here in a, in a second, that they're, they're speaking Lyconian. They're not, they're not speaking... Uh, any of the the more Roman common languages, they're speaking more of uh, a regional dialect. These, are, I guess, you would maybe say people who are a little bit more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're kind of uh, isolated, maybe sure, a little bit okay. more. Yeah, um, yeah. They're not not as exposed. So, to, they're they're more rural. I don't know if that's the right way of saying it either. But they're maybe not always in the big yeah. city. They've got their regional dialect. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're not kind of ex- exposed to kind of the more big Roman world, I guess, is what you, what you might say. And, and because of this, their exposure to not only the Jewish faith, but their, their, their exposure to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ would be extremely limited. So Paul and Barnabas are coming into town, and Paul is doing this work, and it's very likely that, that right here, at this moment, as Paul is doing this work, is where this faith kind of enters into the equation. I think here we're probably dealing with somebody who was a neophyte in the truest sense, mm. and that's kind of uh, amazing to me, that as Paul is, is preaching, Paul looks at this man and sees that he has faith to be made well, and uh, that miracle happens at Paul's command. Mm. Well, and so this is where I think also the the connection to the previous miracles like this are helpful. You know, Peter makes it very plain in the two that happened in the book of Acts uh, that that he's doing this not of his own power, but this is the yeah. name of Jesus that is happen is causing this to happen. This is Christ Himself at work, and so I, I think it's fair to say the same thing is going on here with Paul, even though. It's not made explicit in this text. We should understand that going on. And and two, I, I really appreciate what you say here about that this man has faith, that this is, I mean, it seems like this should we should understand this to be a, a testimony to the power of the Word of God to work as it is being preached. Because as you say, it yeah. doesn't mention that Paul is doing this at a synagogue, like we've heard in previous situations. And again, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a synagogue, but for whatever reason, Luke doesn't choose to record how that went down in Lystra, or this is just, this is what he chooses. But we do see that that in this, 
Yeah, how do you how do you describe Lystra and the the situation? Speaking of Lyconian, they they are a little more superstitious, as again we will see. Yeah, but it, it does seem that they you know their their local community is what dominates, and not maybe so much of the the outside world uh, having the influences like at other places, perhaps something like that. Uh, and yet, yeah, and uh, well, and I'll just yeah, and yet the word of God has effect on this unnamed man such that he believes the good news that Paul preaches and then also receives this healing. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that uh, in just a little in just a little bit, that the nature of Lystra um, it really does seem like the local religion is very, very strong and that local religion is kind of explicitly pagan. Uh, we're dealing with people who are are dealing with uh, Zeus and Hermes or their Roman counterparts, um, based upon them having priests of this religion there, based on uh, them having statues of these religions there. So the gospel coming to them is, is causing faith kind of immediately, and uh, the kingdom of God restoring this man comes very early on in in kind of the existence of the church in that place. And, and that in and of itself is amazing. Right. And I, I think that's why it is important that we recognize just in that verse about the faith of this man so that we do see, even as there is quite a misunderstanding and, and gross unbelief that does happen later in this text, that the gospel yeah. still is effective. The, the Holy Spirit is at work where this gospel is preached. And at least this man is brought to faith here in, here in Lystra. Now, the reaction of the crowd, however, is is far from what a preacher would have hoped, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we start to see the the superstition and, and as you said, the the pagan unbelief that is here in Lystra. Talk a little bit about what their reaction is. Uh, give us some of the details that maybe aren't as as apparent uh, in our in our day and age. This matter of Barnabas being Zeus, Paul being Hermes. What's going on here? Yeah, as, as far as far as I read uh, in the commentary, this this situation. I don't know. Paul and Paul and Barnabas obviously didn't go into uh, Lystra, kind of understanding the the story of the the religious nature of the people and and masking themselves as kind of local gods. But when Paul tells this man to to stand up right on his feet, and he does, everybody who is around seems to automatically kind of know what's going on, uh, because uh, apparently there had been some some kind of religious story uh, about Zeus and Hermes visiting this area hmm. and, and doing these kind of miracles before. And, and because of this, uh, the people and the priests in the town kind of assume that this is exactly what is happening again. Um, so they, they come out, they literally say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, kind of looking back towards their, their religious myth of, of the area, and, and they just assume that uh, Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and they, they treat him as such. That's right. It always I I do appreciate that Luke tells us that the reason that they call Paul Hermes is because he's the chief speaker. 
if I remember my yeah. mythology correctly, Hermes is the the messenger of the gods. It always it always threw me yeah. off because I Paul being the main person, like he, he always is the one front and center. I would think you would, I would assume you'd think he'd be Zeus, the chief god, but no, he's the messenger of the gods, so he gets to be Hermes. Barnabas gets to be Zeus. It's, I mean, it's, I suppose it makes us chuckle a little bit, and and yet the the serious nature of of pagan unbelief is is on full display here, where what strikes you know you and me as obviously something this is being done through our savior jesus christ the world comes up with an entirely different explanation and and we maybe laugh at them today you know oh cuz we're smart and we know better than them but but how often today perhaps do we attribute such good things that happen in our lives to false gods rather than the one true god and and i'm thinking maybe the God of science. Sometimes we, we attribute yeah. things to that God instead of attributing it to the one true God. I don't know. What do you think, Pastor Elmer? Yeah, or the, yeah I, I, I agree there. I, I think in, in a lot of ways you can attribute that God of science to uh, a very parallel understanding of what's going on here, stuff like a modern, modern medicine and modern techniques and, and modern uh, nutrition and agricultural uh, breakthroughs, a lot of that stuff can be given credit to the amount and type of food that we have and the extending of life that we are blessed to have, uh, attributing that to science, attributing that to, to man's uh, intellect, where really those are gifts given to us mm-hmm. uh, by God through people. Right, um, right. I would, I would also just like to add to that uh, as I tell the people that I serve all the time, man, oh man, can can we attribute? Uh, we as people, even uh, we as Christian people, can attribute uh, credit to false gods all the time. And the one that I find myself doing that to most is, of course, myself. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Luther in the Large Catechism goes to great length to to tell us how our our, our chief. Uh, idol is ourself, and how often do I and how often do other people that I witness I give credit to ourselves for the things that we accomplish? Yeah, that's right. When yeah, really, when really we and, and our strength and our intellect and our ability all are gifts of God that we utilize, and not giving uh, credit to the Creator and Giver Himself. Yeah, I, I was going to tell you you're really bad about that, Pastor Elmer, but so am yeah. I. <laughs> that's right. But so am I. <laughs> So am I. I, no. I I'll, I'll, I'll take that criticism every single time it's, it's offered because it's just true. Yes, yes, you're right. We, we make idols out of everything and particularly ourselves. This is, this is what I am best at, too, is, is considering myself an idol. And I appreciate you saying, you know, when it comes to science, we certainly recognize that the Lord works through means. And he does use people and our knowledge and the brains that he's given us. He uses these things so that, you know, we do have these gifts and we should understand that they are gifts. But we should also never forget what we might call the providence of God or the provision of God, that he stands behind all these means. And when we forget that and and we think that these are somehow only human achievements, then although it it may not look like us going and offering sacrifice to, you know, to two people who we think are, are these deities, we can fall into this same error of attributing credit to some idol rather than the true God, if we're not careful. And, and we should recognize that, yeah, or, that tendency among ourselves. Go ahead. Yeah, or, or put more simply, we put our fear, love, and trust mm-hmm. in the gift rather than the, yeah. the one who gives the gift. Yeah. And that's kind of 
the, the the way that's always easy to kind of diagnose idolatry. Yeah. Am I am I putting my faith in something that's given to us or the one who gave it? Yeah. Yeah, that's that is a, a helpful diagnosis. So yeah. the people, the crowd have have thought that Barnabas, that's Zeus, Paul is Hermes. Here comes the priest of Zeus. He's bringing the animals. He's got garlands. I mean, they're going to have the full worship service here for Zeus yep. and Hermes because they're in front of them. Why wouldn't you do that? Of course, Barn- I mean, Barnabas. I, I would say. <laughs> Go ahead. I would say to their credit, if it were uh, Zeus and Hermes, they're they're definitely doing what is uh, owed to them. Yes. Right? Okay. I mean, so they're being consistent by by their own religion. They're they're doing the only thing that they believe is appropriate. Okay. All right. But but Paul and Barnabas they understand what's happening or they learn what's happening and they're they're quick to yeah. put an end to it and and in the most vehement of fashion. And and we were talking you know about yes, they are. about how this is something that I don't think we should, we would ever expect to see. Uh, it yet it does remind me. Uh, it's not quite the same thing, but it's perhaps slightly parallel. When Peter arrives at Cornelius's house back in Acts chapter ten, Cornelius starts to to bow down to Peter, and Peter is quick to tell him to get up because he also is a man. Yeah. Now that that's not quite the same level as what we see here, but it does perhaps show that there has been a tendency in other places to worship the wrong thing, and and that's what's happening here. So Paul and Barnabas begin to put a they they're quick to put an end to this, take, begin to take us into that, their response in, in 14 and following. Yeah, so it, it does seem that the, the second that Paul and Barnabas figure out what was going on, and to, to Paul and Barnabas's credit here, I think part, part of one of the reasons why it gets to the point that it does is, as we mentioned before, these people are speaking Lyconian, these people are 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 not speaking a language that they that Paul and Barnabas are going to be super familiar with so they don't exactly understand everything that is happening as the rumblings and, and the the planning and stuff goes on but the second they figure out uh, that they are the the targets of this worship they put it down quickly and they make that exact same argument as clearly as they can men why are you doing these things we are also men Right, it tells them that we are people, we are not gods. Uh, in fact, we are uh, coming to you to proclaim to you uh, the one true God, and that's and that's where they direct the rest of their message. Right, and so we we get back to that proclamation of the word, which we know has already been happening there in Lystra. The man who had been unable to walk now able to walk. He has heard the good news. He has believed, and so Paul and Barnabas are going to take the opportunity to continue to preach that good news in the face of this misunderstanding. And we are going to pick up that part of the sermon on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking Acts 14 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 2nd. We're studying Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 28 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we left off where Paul and Barnabas have learned that the crowd is regarding them as gods, Zeus and Hermes to be exact, and they are going to put a quick end to that. They indicate their great displeasure, not only with their words, but actually tearing their garments. And as you pointed out to us before we went on break, their first thing is is very straightforward. Look, we are men just like you. Don't do this. And don't do this because, in fact, we do have good news for you. And it's not about these, well, dead gods, Zeus and Hermes, these these falsehoods. But we're going to hear, we are here to proclaim a living God to you. And this is where we get at least a piece of the sermon that Paul preached there in Lystra. Help us to see what Paul preaches and maybe some things that are a a little bit different than the things, well, it's the same gospel, but a different approach that Paul takes as he preaches the gospel here in Lystra. Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference in approach is whenever Paul and and Peter and the rest of the apostles are going about and doing uh, the missionary work in the Jewish synagogues, their their sermons sound very familiar because they they use a very good and a very effective strategy of proclaiming to the people uh, the fulfillment of Scripture. They 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 base their argument in the the Torah and in the prophets about how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the things that were taught in the Torah and the, and the prophets. Here, you, you don't get that, because like we talked before, these people likely weren't familiar with the Torah and the prophets, correct? As far as we know, I mean, it doesn't—again, there's no specific mention of a Jewish synagogue, and the fact that these people are worshiping Hermes and Zeus, I think indicates that if they have heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't believe in him. Yeah. And 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 there's where, where Paul, I think, uh, starts, and I think he makes two uh, very clear claims up front. Number one is pointing them to a living God. Mm. So making the argument that the God that they serve, the God, if you would say, the God that made this uh, lame man well, was one, right? Not multiple gods, um, not Zeus, not Hermes, we're dealing with one living God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, uh, after making that argument that they are dealing with a living God, they, they make mention of the kind of the natural phenomena that make God known to them. Mm-hmm. They, they tell them uh, that the God that they serve is the one who makes the heaven, the earth, the sea, all that is in them. Um, this God is the one, of course, would be, would be recognized in the Genesis narrative. Mm-hmm. But if, if these people didn't believe in that narrative, they at least could observe uh, creation in the heavens, the earth, the sea, and in all their their components by kind of experiencing and, and witnessing nature. And and Paul 
is uh, proclaiming that the God that they serve is the one who made that. Mm. So I, I think if I can, to, to try to compare and contrast what we see preached here before Gentiles and what gets preached before the Jews, it, it's two different starting places that are both going to the same ending place. So if I can summarize the sermons to the Jews, I'd, I'd try to do it like this, something to the effect of where Peter or Stephen or Paul would preach, here's the God you know. He is the true God, the one who revealed himself to Moses, to our fathers. And now who? how do you know who he is? How has he fulfilled all his promises? He has fulfilled all his promises in Jesus Christ. That I think that's the general progression progression of the preaching yeah. to the Jews. Here's here's who you yep. know God as, and now he's fulfilled all his promises, that God, in Jesus Christ, because he's God and Lord, okay? That's that's pretty much the sermon. Here, the starting point is a little bit different, because like we said, it doesn't seem that they know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, they're, yep. they're believing in these false gods. So the starting point here is, okay, the gods you believe, they're not real. They're vain things. They're falsehoods. But there is the true God, and the way that you can recognize that he is there is by the fact that he created all this and he's sustaining all this. And then I, I would assume then that Luke just hasn't recorded the rest of the sermon, <laughs> which is where yeah. Paul goes on to proclaim that this true God has revealed himself now in Jesus Christ. And and that even as a part of that, there are going to be some of the Old Testament scriptures that are being used in that proclamation because it's it's just going to happen. I mean, that's, that is the scripture. That is God's word. And even in a, a Gentile context, you're going to have to bring that out, I think, at some point, and that's just not recorded for us. That's that's kind of how I see the the both the differences and yet the similarities between the the preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles up to this point in Acts, at least. Yeah, and and I would and I would add to that, Paul, even to the the point that you guys can recognize this one true God as opposed to your vain gods is that this God. He does love you. He does care for you. He does give you all these gifts, the rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and, and gladness. Uh, he's trying to proclaim to them that these these things come from a God who loves them, and that ultimately I think the sermon has to go to, to how that love is shown to them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. With also understanding that Paul and Barnabas are, are preaching to people uh, who have have never heard a message of this kind. At, at some point, when the, the Church starts a congregation kind of there in their midst, at some point, obviously, they're going to have to, A, uh, get some kind of scriptural witness, and, and B, uh, they're going to have to attain some... Uh, I don't know what the, the the right word is here. Some kind of pastoral oversight, some kind of pastoral influence among them to proclaim to these people who are very new in faith the truth. And the good news is is that uh, we we get some of that element down here in the second part of the text that hasn't been read yet. That's right. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see how that continued pastoral care does come. And so for now, we've got this this part of the sermon that Paul preaches there. Luke tells us that even even with all of this, they they had a hard time keeping them from offering sacrifice, and and then we find out that some friends have followed Paul and Barnabas. So we continue the text oh, yeah. in verse nineteen now. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. 
and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. That takes us through the end of our text today, through the end of Acts chapter 14. So, Pastor Ulmer, this is where I think we can say that the Jews who came from Antioch and Iconium were a bit more than upset because they they yeah. they followed Paul and not as a fan club. Tell us what happens when the the Jews <laughs> from Antioch and Iconium show up. Yeah, their 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 problem with with Paul uh, from from before has uh, caused them to follow him to uh, this new uh, area. And in Lystra, these Jews somehow work up the crowds enough to cause them to reject Paul. They, they reject him to the point of throwing stones at him, and they throw stones at him to the point that he at least seems dead. Okay? He, he is wounded enough that they, they think he's dead, and they drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. I think that's about as strong of a persecution as you can possibly get besides reaching down and confirming that he has no pulse. Yeah, it's I mean this is this is quite the turn of events. It goes from receiving the praise as if they're false gods and about to offer worship to them to now some opponents come and stir up the crowds such that even the crowds do begin to participate in the stoning of Paul and and they think he's actually died. But he's not. He's not dead. And I think it's there. You know, I, I was reading this and I, it struck me. It says in verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, such that there are disciples who are there. So perhaps mm-hmm. there are already believers, other believers there in Lystra who are part of this crowd. Perhaps some disciples have followed along or tried to warn Paul and Barnabas ahead of time. Not not sure precisely where these disciples are from, but the word of God is, is effective. They see, no, Paul's yep. not actually dead. He gets up and, and then, hey. He keeps on preaching. I, I love that about Paul and the apostles throughout the book of Acts. Every time they get knocked down, they get right back up and they keep doing the thing that got them knocked down. They keep proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, they, they do kind of without fail. And that's, at least to me, it's it's two things. Number one, a testimony to the immense power of the Word of God, number one. And, and two... It's an immense testimony to the the faith of these apostles that they they had become so convinced of the resurrection of Christ that they picked up that cross and and they followed Jesus and proclaimed him for the life of the world to to the point of having rocks thrown at them. Mm. That that to me is is such an encouragement uh, 
I, I, I have a hard time even expressing it. I guess that's the point I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Paul And Paul will refer to this event in, I, I forget which epistle it is, but when he lists the things that happened to him for the sake of the gospel, the fact that he received this the stoning here is one of the things that he has referred to in in the list of his many persecutions, the suffering that he endures for the sake of the name of Jesus, which is what the Lord told him yeah. was going to happen. Yeah, and the the reference that you're looking for there is actually Second Corinthians. Uh, Thank you. He mentions it in Second Corinthians eleven. That was what I was going to guess, but I wasn't positive. Thank you. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Second Corinthians you're, eleven. You're you're well. I think that that's that's part of. I don't know if I could have pulled that one off if I hadn't done the the prep for this show. But well, I, mean, I appreciate you. I appreciate clear, you reminding clear, me. Clear that. that out. Good. Good. <laughs> good. So so Paul yeah. now he's he's. I mean they they stoned him. He's not dead. He goes on to Derby, and and from there, Derby. And if if you have a, by the way, just for the the Lutheran Study Bible has this nice little map. It's on page eight eighteen eighty six that I made a copy of, so I don't have to flip back and forth. That I'm looking at. It really helps me with the geography mm-hmm. here. So Derby is where they turn around essentially, and and Luke is pretty mm-hmm. quick with the way that he describes their return trip. We're going to hear names of cities that we've heard before, but there are some details of what happens on the return trip, even if it's not a ton of information. There are some details. So they they get to Derby, they preach the gospel there, disciples are made, then they turn around and go back. So what do they do on their way back? We, we referenced this earlier, some of the pastoral care things that happen. What's, what's the purpose of going back to these cities? Yeah, so so going back to these cities, I don't I don't know about you, but this this actually might be kind of my my favorite part of this text because they go back through all of these cities in order that they might strengthen the soul of disciples there. So these when they go preach the gospel in these cities, hearts are converted to Christ, they become believers, they become part of the church, and in there those groups of disciples you would think would become the congregations, right? So as these are planted by the the Word of God in this missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are going back through these cities to check on these uh, newly created small communities uh, who now believe and confess in Christ. Uh, They're strengthened because I think that the persecution that Christ promised, the persecution that Paul experienced, um, was probably experienced in part by uh, the disciples who came uh, under the name of Jesus Christ in those places. So Paul coming back through uh, allowed them to to preach the gospel to them again, to encourage them in the faith, and to provide uh, other things that the, these new fledgling congregations would, would need in the future. Well, and one of those things that they provide for these congregations is the in verse 23... They appoint elders yep. for them. We should understand what is what does that mean that they appointed elders for these places. I I, I really think that uh, here with this appointing of elders, this is kind of what's being talked about in in Titus one. Mm. Uh, this is where where Paul is is saying, and, and I'm just going to read uh, Titus one five here uh, as as a, as it relates to what is happening in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then following that statement by Paul in Titus 1.5, you get this list of qualifications for um, 
an elder, which I think we understand here is probably uh, finding men who fit the qualifications, uh, who are are of good respect and teaching capability. And these people were probably the first pastors in these congregations. Yeah, I, I think that's what we should understand verse 23 to say. The yeah. essential, I mean, you know, the New Testament will use words like elders or sometimes overseers. And and when we when we read those in the New Testament, we should picture in our minds something similar to what pastors are today. So verse twenty three, when they had appointed pastors for them in every church, is yep. essentially what's what's happening. Uh, I mean, then that's that's part of the the work that Paul and Barnabas do as they go back is to provide for the ongoing pastoral care, the ongoing proclamation of the gospel in these places. And I mean, as it as Luke tells us, this is for the strengthening of their souls. It's encouraging them to continue the faith, and it's to remind them that it is through these tribulations that they will be in the kingdom of God. That, I mean, just mm-hmm. like, I mean, you know, if, if these people are willing to follow Paul in order to stone him in another town, then you, you have to know that they're going to they're going to try to persecute the people who are there in the town. They don't have to follow them. They just, they know where they live and they're going to make life very difficult for them. And I think, you know, I mean, you were talking about how much encouragement there is in this text and, and singing the example of the apostles as they undergo persecution. How, how much of an example would that have been to the people in these towns? You know, these men from Antioch and Iconium had followed Paul and Barnabas in order to stone Paul. And yet on his return trip, Paul's not afraid to go back to those towns, but he goes back to those towns to strengthen the saints there. I think that would have been quite a quite a encouragement to those congregations. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I think that's an immensely powerful part of this text because Paul does. He goes back to them and, and provides for them the things that are, are necessary for their continuing life as the people of God. Um, and that's so wonderful. And I think the other comment I want to make here is that this kind of also presupposes that when Paul returns, um, there are actually communities uh, following the name of Jesus in these places. Um, The people who had heard the message believed, and and apparently that had been spread in the time that Paul and Barnabas were away, that the the gospel of Jesus had gone out and actually um, taken root in these places and and made the early church what it was. Mm. Yeah, it's a, another good reminder of the power of God's word to create faith. Mm-hmm. That the Holy Spirit is at work when the gospel is proclaimed. He does create faith in the hearts of those who believe, and that's what we see in these towns. There's the the Holy Spirit has done what he promised through the work of of Paul and Barnabas, and God be praised for it. He gets all the credit. So they they continue their journey, and again, we, we follow their, their path back. They don't go back to Cyprus. They had started by going to Cyprus, but they don't go back to Cyprus, it appears, on their way back to Antioch, that is Antioch in Syria, where they started. And when they get back there, they give the church a report. What what do they report when they get back to Antioch in Syria? Yeah, they re- they report uh, that the gospel of Jesus Christ had gone out to uh, the land of the Gentiles. Um, they declared all of the wonderful things that God had done, and that God had really opened 
a, a door of faith uh, for the Gentiles. Um, there's multiple other references in uh, the epistles that talk about this kind of opening of the door. You, mm-hmm. you get this kind of language in 1 Corinthians 16. You get it in Colossians 4. You even get it in the uh, letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, where mm. God God did open the door of the faith, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And, and Paul uh, was a witness of this, and he was reporting this to the church in Antioch, how uh, the church had been started there based on the proclamation of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, it, the the way that Luke describes their return to Syria and Antioch is just another reminder of how the one who is at work in the book of Acts, as much as Paul's the one whose mouth opens and, and he preaches, this is God who's at work in the book of Acts. This is yeah. not simply the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I mean, Paul gives all the credit, and Barnabas too, they both yeah, give all the does. credit wherever, where the credit is due, which is to God alone. And in that, and you know, I mean, there's nothing in Syria and Antioch. They're, they're all giving thanks to God as they should be. But mm-hmm. what a temptation it is for the one who proclaims and who gets to see the growth. What a temptation it would be for that one to take the credit. And, and here we have Paul and Barnabas doing precisely the same thing that they did earlier in Acts 14. This isn't us. We're not the ones. We're just men give all the thanks and praise to God. He's the one who's opened the door. Over and over again, God's the one at work here. And, and we see that right at the end of the, the first missionary journey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they they stay there in Syria and Antioch. If if I did my, my math right, some somewhere in the vicinity of three years, uh, where they get to spend no little time there with the disciples, I'm, I'm guessing they're going to be there teaching and encouraging them, and that's where they remain until uh, we get to the the next section, which I'm sure you are just excited to talk about uh, next time on Sharper Iron, which is the Jerusalem Council. That, that's right. Yeah, and and the the timeline is is you know it's there are different folks who have different suggestions. Doctor Steinman, in his book from Abraham to Paul, that's the one that I've kind of been following his timeline. He suggests that uh, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch in sometime in the year 48, mid to late 48, and then the Jerusalem Council. He puts it pretty pretty soon afterwards in January of 49. Okay. But it does, I mean, it's worth pointing out that it's it's not like the end of chapter 14 and then the next day is when chapter 15 starts. I mean, we, we should try to yeah. at least have some sort of concept of a, a timeline here. And that is that is important for us to to recognize, and I think you know what I what I appreciate about this section of the the first missionary journey is that you do get to see the variety of activity that happens on the first missionary journey. Sometimes I, I think in my own mind I have the conception, or it's easy for me to just sort of gloss over. Yeah, Paul went there, started a church, then he went to the next town, started a church, and then he came home. Well, no, there's a lot more work that happens on Paul's missionary journey. Mm-hmm. And the the strengthening of the saints that we see him doing, and then the, you know, this, I don't know, hanging out at, at home at the home base for a while, like it, you you yeah. see the the fullness of the missionary activity, and it's more than just, and, and I'm not saying that's unimportant, but it's more than just going to a place that's never had the gospel before, but all of that work of the church, that's all a part of it, and I think that's an encouragement for us today, you know, when we're not always maybe involved in planting a church, thanks be to God when we get to do that. But even when we're not, we're still under going through that same work that Paul was given to do. 
Yeah, because I, I think that's that's an essential component of taking care of the saints in the place for the the longevity of the of the church in that specific place. Um, making sure not only that the gospel is received by the people, but that they have uh, that truly good word and, and sacramental ministry that will sustain the, the church in those places. Because I think you can you can imagine if if that work of encouraging and appointing elders hadn't been done, then how long does the true proclamation of Christ stay in that place? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's very I think it's a very important piece of of the puzzle that is uh, contained in in very few words in the Book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, strengthening the saints, the ongoing work of learning, teaching, proclaiming the gospel in the same place—that is a part of the missionary work of the church. We should never lose sight of that. Yeah, Pastor Omar, we got about two minutes here. Help us to wrap things up on Paul's first missionary journey this morning. Yeah, so for this morning, we talked about the end of Paul's first missionary journey, uh, where he comes into Lystra and proclaims uh, the gospel to a largely Gentile population. Uh, He heals a man who is uh, crippled from birth, who's paralyzed from birth, and in seeing this miracle, the, the Gentiles of the area, the, the pagan Gentiles, they worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, and they take this opportunity to proclaim to them uh, that they aren't Zeus and Hermes, but that they are uh, the God who, who created them and sent uh, his son to save them. And then they, they went to Derby and, and went back through all of the towns that they had visited, uh, strengthening the saints and appointing pastors for these churches that the early church might have what she needed to to grasp on and believe in the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that was their salvation. Uh, thanks be to, to God that he used uh, people like Barnabas and Paul to, to proclaim this message uh, to these early Christians, that in that unbroken chain of proclamation, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has come to us as members of the church, too. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us today with Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 28. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a pleasure. I am your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 14, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.